Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, thanks for listening. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. On this episode of the Organic Wine Podcast, we take a journey to far north New Hampshire to talk to Michael Phillips. Michael Phillips is a farmer, or a cultivator of fungal ecosystems, as he might put it. And he's the author of the book, The Apple Grower, also The Holistic Orchard, and most recently, Mycorrhizal Planet. If you're an orchardist or vineyardist, is that a word? All three books are must-reads, but Mycorrhizal Planet is a must-read even if you're just a human with no interest in growing apples or grapes. On the surface, Mycorrhizal Planet is about regenerative practices for the farm, garden, orchard, forest, and landscape. But as you listen to Michael describe the principles it covers, you begin to see that it is a cornerstone in the literal foundation of our future. We may someday look back and see the 20th century as a century of separation. During the 20th century, the idea that we are separate from each other and from nature reached its pinnacle, and the results were at times catastrophic. In terms of agriculture, we've entered the 21st century with the most biologically degraded landscapes since the earth began. My hope, though, is that by the end of this century, the 21st, we will be able to look back and call it the century of reconnection. Michael is laying out some of the groundwork, pun intended, of that regenerative renaissance. He promotes outrageous diversity and collaboration as some of the ways that we can, quote, do fungal things. When we begin to apply the principles he promotes to the world, we stop planting vineyards and orchards and we start launching deeply interconnected ecosystems. This really is a magical journey. You can't take a fungal trip without a little magic, but it's also extremely practical. Michael describes his vision for a connected landscape by explaining the science and the steps we can take to help cultivate it. The end result is, of course, a healthier and more delicious bottle of cider or wine. But is that really the end of the process or the tantalizing lure that the earth uses to draw us into the fruit and then to the trees and vines and then down into the soil from where we all awaken. Enjoy. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for doing this. I think we're up and running. It's it's a pleasure to join you, Adam, from snowy New Hampshire to sunny California. That's right. We're, We're having our 70 degree days and are you guys above freezing right now? Last night we went down to zero, so we, we'll take zero as our freezing point. <laughs> so we're above. Um, we're above. That's, I used to spend. Nice. I've I've kind of always wanted to spend a winter in New Hampshire. My my father's from there, and we used to spend summers on a uh, up there, and and still have a lot of family in New Hampshire. So I've a I'm I'm very fond of New Hampshire. I've been to the top of Mount Washington in a t-shirt and shorts, and thinking it was going to be cool and nearly had hypothermia um (laughs) and uh i remember when the old man the mountain used to have a face when there was an old man the mountain yes he has fallen down we're we're managing it but we're still living free (laughs) and dying or or dying i forget (laughs) (laughs) i love it um well by way of just you know, getting you to talk a little bit about yourself and and what you do, 
you are I, I just wanted to ask you you're you're as much of an author and as a as a as a farmer and i wonder if you could just talk about you know the books that you've written uh, which i you know i could introduce but i think it would be great if you could just sort of give a quick summation of them um but also what that's like you know how do those two you know labors of being a writer and being a farmer complement each other and how do they conflict with each other in your life well, for me, you know, the first book was Apple Grower that came out in 1998. And that was just like, I found an editor and a publisher and we had an offer. I'm working with Chelsea Green all along. And I was just totally naive about what it took to write a book. And so I jumped <laughs> off the cliff and, and out came a book, um, so to speak. And then I got to revise that in 2005. I have another book with my wife, Nancy. The Herbalist Way, which connects to the the healing plants and all the ways that those work with our bodies to help us be better. But that's an important kind of sidebar in my path because the integration of herbs and understanding system health and immune function, that very much comes into my orcharding. Um, I went on from there to write a book called The Holistic Orchard that came out in 2011. And then just a few years ago, my fungal book came out, which is called Mycorrhizal Planet. So if, if, you, if you're kind of following those years, it's, it's like I produce a crop, a book crop every seven years or so, which is uh, <laughs> it's how idea, it's the pace at which ideas come. It also involves like financially recovering from a book. It's, it's not a, you know, these are not best sellers. <laughs> they do fine in their niche. Um, but what I'm, I'm basically doing, I'm, I'm listening to the trees, I'm listening to the earth, and then I pursue what we have for human knowledge about subjects like mycorrhizal fungi and integrate that into words. And well, I guess it's part of the, the, the New Hampshire path as well. I mean, it's winter. I, I'm not out there pruning at zero degrees. I'm putting together words. I'm crafting new thoughts. And when I am in book mode, so to speak, the year I actually write a book, it might be a one or two or three year path. There'll be, there'll be times when I'm like out there and it's blossom time and, and I've just had this whole new kind of thought conception. And, and I might come in even at midday and, and write down 30 minutes of what's really like direct communication from nature and then later shape that into a book format. But it's I don't know. The two mesh really well for me. Um, and, and I like that old, that idea of in New England, you know, you're not just one thing. It's like you have different jobs you do at different points in, in the year, in the season, seasonal calendar, um, and, and writing falls in there. And I, I enjoy working with words as much as I enjoy working with leaves and, and everything that I find out there in my orchard. I love that. I, I forgot living in Los Angeles, that there are seasons and that there are times of the year when you can't be outside. So that makes sense. <laughs> it would go actually really well with writing. It'd be nice to have an indoor activity to complement your outdoor activities. Um, well, let's just jump right into some some big thoughts. Um, how, how does farming apples properly, holistically, to make delicious, healthy, healthy apples also teach us how to save the world and protect the future of human life. Oh, good. We'll start with the biggest possible big thought you could come up with. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, you know, there was this, this moment where I realized, so we have all these words. We have organic, we have 
ecological, we have biodynamic, we have beyond organic, we have real organic, we have sustainable, we have regenerative. And, and in all that, there's an underlying thread of you're approaching insects, pest issues, disease with an allopathic mindset where you have some form of, of toxin or something that sets back that other organism. And I can, I'm describing chemical agriculture, but I'm also describing options in organic agriculture when I say that. And then there's holistic where we're looking at how can I support the health of the system? How can I understand more about plant phytochemistry kind of from the shared perspective of, of my own body's human immune function um, and, and bring those ideas together so that I'm, I'm working with nature in a very deep sense to not interrupt or disturb the soil food web, the life forces in the arboreal zone on the surface of the plant. There's all kinds of microbes. Um, but to work with that and to feed that and to supplement that because that's how life derived. Um, as we get into talking about the fungi in the soil, um, that story will become even more clear. But, but you get this sense of we, we kind of went off the path, yet our science developed. And we're now at a place where we can see these incredible pictures of microscopic organisms. And we have a sense of like phytoelections and, and different chemistry produced by the plant metabolic process by which it resists disease. And, and, and we have some knowledge of like how disease organisms do a counter move and then the plants check that. And, and if we're really attuned to it all, we can get quite deep into the science, but even on another level, just as a grower, you know, what you need to attune to is photosynthesis. Magic happens when that sun shines and a green leaf is in the sun and sugars are made that are traded with the biology. And as we start to understand that better, and work with that, then this notion of pests and disease, what are essentially symptoms of something not quite right, our mindset shifts. And, and now we have a whole lot more options of how we can produce those grapes, produce those apples um, by working in accord with those life forces. I love that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'd like you to, I'd like to draw you out on the, the idea of, of connection. Um, and, and can you, Talk about that in relation to the mycorrhizal fungi. Um, do you say fungi or fungi, first of all? <laughs> but then also, I, I mean, I love that that word itself is a connection. It's the root and the and the mushroom, the fungus and the mushroom connected to to create the mycorrhizae. Um, but but can you talk about this idea of connection, both in the 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 scientific sense uh, of what we know now? Of, of what's going on in the soil, but also, you know, maybe in a bigger sense of what you've just alluded to. So we have this idea when you look out in the orchard that there's some trees growing possibly in a straight row. Um, and there's some grass in the aisle way in between them. And that's the orchard ecosystem. And you could say the same thing with vineyards. You could substitute the grapes. Um, and right. in reality, there's a plant community there that we have through our own mindset of, of what's appropriate for directing nutrients into the crop we're trying to grow, we have limited quite severely. There's often not a lot of diversity in an orchard or vineyard ecosystem. But when we introduce plant diversity, we also introduce fungal diversity. 
And now we need a little bit of a kind of a plunge into mycorrhizal dynamics. So that, that word mycorrhizal, uh, myco, Greek root for the word fungal, uh, for indicating the fungal kingdom, rhiza, Greek root indicating the root system of plants. So approximately 450 million years ago, when the oceans receded in the tidal pools, were left some algae. Algae didn't have roots. They didn't really quite know how to handle this land thing. There were oceanic fungi in the tidal pools. They had filaments, some mycelium. Uh, it was a, a perfect combination because there could be this symbiosis where the fungi could bring nutrients from the soil to the fledgling plants who in turn could photosynthesize and produce carbon sugars food for the fungi. And so that union began. So when I talk about mycorrhizal fungi, I'm talking about fungi that live in a direct relationship with plants. You can have an isolated fungal spore, but that's not doing the mycorrhizal thing. There has to be this union. And in a healthy ecosystem, we have found, scientists have found, as many as 50 different species of mycorrhizal might be at play. And they're not all affiliated with every plant, but any given plant has several different affiliations. And so in that network of fungi and plants, when there's lots of diversity, you start to have sharing going on. So what's, what's created here is what's known as a common mycorrhizal network. Back in the uh, 1920s, when Rudolf Steiner gave the lectures in Germany that launched the biodynamic farming movement, he called it a common root being. I, I like that language because there's a, a livingness to it. Um, so it's through this common mm. root being that plants access the full array of nutrients that are available throughout that plant community. So there, there's an incredible intelligence to this. And, and I, I do want to step back and say, as humans, we only became aware of the mycorrhizal fungi about the time of the Civil War, just beyond then. And this was with the mycorrhizal fungi that affiliate with the trees in the forest. These are known as ectomycorrhizae, uh, ecto standing for outside, but, but they're visible to our eye. When you look at the fine roots of, of trees in the forest, lift that leaf litter mat, um, you will see that mycelium, which is the fungi that associating with those tree roots. But when I talk about apple trees and clover and grasses and grapevines and wildflowers and most of the vegetables in our gardens, I'm talking about endomycorrhizae, E-N-D-O. That word indicates that the nutrient transfer mechanism actually penetrates inside the actual cell of the root um, to deliver those nutrients and trade for the carbon sugar. There, I'm talking about... Um, maybe approximately 400 species total on the whole planet. Nature got this right, right from the start. There isn't like tens of thousands of species that keep evolving. It's, it's three, 400 players that we're going to find in orchards and vineyards and all the different ecosystems from the equator going up towards the poles. Um, they have different skill sets. And when we start to have that plant diversity, we have more of these fungi with different skill sets. So what do those skill sets look like? There'll be a certain fungi that's really adept at bringing zinc to the system. Another one is, hey, I'll do manganese. Most of them have the ability to help get phosphorus to the plant. 
Some are adept at getting calcium, magnesium. You get the idea. The, uh, through the mycelium that's formed to create this common root being, our one apple tree that we're looking at right now, our one vineyard, <laughs> is not just getting nutrients from the space where we picture its roots, but there's a whole swap going on, a, a, a network, this common mycorrhizal network that's formed to deliver nutrients where they're most needed. And, and then it's not simply done kind of as a capitalistic <laughs> approach where, hey guys, I'm the tallest plant and I'm, I'm the one that's here getting most of the sunshine. And so I'm gonna get all the nutrients because I'm rich. It's, it's like the fungi almost know. It's, we're going to charge that plant more because we want these other plants to have some help. So this is also, you know, now we're tripping into the notion that <laughs> earth nature has formed life primarily through collaborative support networks. Whereas humans, we kind of introduced that, this idea that, Oh, it's all about competition. Who, who can get in line first and get the best share? Um, Nature doesn't do that, but we as agriculturalists, as farmers, as growers, it's, it's hard to break from that. Just like it's hard to break from the, the idea that I have a pest or disease, I need to reach for an allopathic tool to take care of it. I'm not ruling that out. That's, a, that's, that's there as an option and in certain situations, both in our own lives, our own health, and in farming, we need to do that. But in general, we should be following nature's lead and working with collaborative support networks like the fungi and plant diversity to do amazing things. And, you know, now we're tripping into the actual fruit that we produce, which we're going to ferment <laughs> in the case of your podcast, whether right. we're talking wine or we're talking cider. <laughs> and if I have fruit that has this network, this common root being behind it, I'm going to achieve things in terms of nutrient balance and plant metabolism that is just going to trip the lights fantastic in terms of the potential what I can do with that when I put it in the carboy or the wine barrel and eventually in the glass. Um, that just is not available if we don't grasp this concept that all of this springs from plant diversity, green leaves in the sunshine, working with fungi down beneath the soil. And yeah, you've referred to wine and cider as fungal beverages which I, I love just talking about how if we're really going to understand terroir that concept we you often say do fungal things and it seems like that's i mean that seems like what you're trying to pound home with mycorrhiza planet um just that idea that we need to think about our impact on the mycorrhizae when as we're doing anything with you know creating wine or farming anything can you, you want to talk a little bit more about fungal beverages and how we can think about wine and cider as fungal beverages well fungal <laughs> in, in one obvious sense that's quite easy because the yeasts that we use are unicellular fungi so right there on the, the forefront of the right. fermentation we got fungal energy i'm talking about where the fruit came from you use that word terroir which is which is a wonderful word um but it's it, it's not just a question of the granite rocks of new hampshire <laughs> versus the sandier soils maybe where you are um it's not just a question of, of right. the climate are we zone three or zone four it's not just a question of 
what I like to call environmental reality, and that's the pest and disease pressures you face, which in turn induce a phytochemical response in the plants that we grow, which in turn is something to do with the nutrient phytochemical medicinal virtue of the fruit that we're going to make into cider and wine. What I'm, what I'm talking about here in terms of down below, as above, so below, the fungal connection is where we are accessing those nutrients. You know, I'm looking out the window here and I, I see my apple trees and, and just beyond that is, is the woods. And here and there, I see some willows and some alder clumps. They're not in the orchard. They're just essentially outside it. Um, those plants have their own fungi that they're working with. And, and actually, when, I, when I'm talking willow and alder, um, any of what's known as the soft hardwoods, they have an affiliation with ectomycorrhizal types, but also endotypes, that they're actually bridge species. And what's really cool here is my apple trees, through their endomycorrhizae, aren't going to have too much to do with bedrock minerals. But the willow and the popple through the ectotypes, which reach down as much as 12 feet, they are pulling up minerals from the rock that are being transferred to plants in between the willow and the apple that then get some of those minerals mm. to the apple, which it otherwise would not ex have access to. And that in turn just increases the mineral content of my fruit, which is to me about as pure as we can get when we talk about terroir, when we, when we see that what's happening through that fungal lens. Yeah, I love I love that idea. And this just underlines the idea of biodiversity. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't help but relate that to, to grapevines as well, which clearly developed over the millennia to use trees. I imagine the hardwood trees and the forest as its structure to climb on uh, to get up to the sunlight. And I, I can't, help but think it must be just as important if not more so for grapevines uh that that are these sort of liminal species at the edges of of woods and things like that does that sound does that ring true with you that sounds really really cool because i never you know my perspective is is the apple tree and the branch and, and how that grows and and i know what grapes are in terms of being a vine and i know of that relationship you're talking about the tree structure supporting the vine but to put it together, as you just did, knowingly or not, Adam, <laughs> is to recognize how those grape roots are right there, possibly with the bridge tree species yeah. plugging in, uh, and that they evolved that way. That, that I love that. That's beautiful. Um, again, you know, we can we can go deep into science, and I don't know. I read these science papers, and somehow I I I, I have this good filter. It's like, well, that's, that's a lot of big words there. <laughs> oh, here's a bit. Oh, there's a bit that I can actually use as a farmer, as a grower. And, and I can articulate that into the framework so other growers can understand it. But really what we have to understand is as humans, and, and it keeps coming down to these simple concepts, biodiversity. I, I use the term outrageous diversity. Um, and, and, and some of that's yeah. about little tiny flowers on the valerian plant on the uh, buckwheat in the garden plant that attracts cyphid flies, which help take care of the aphids that are out there in the vineyard or in the orchard. Some of that is about all these fungal connections we've been talking about. Um, but it comes down to that, those terms, diversity, fungal connection, 
sunshine. And to the degree that we as growers want to delve into the science, that's fine. But, but that's the starting principle. That's the language of the earth. And when we work with that, we make it our own. We, we, we feel it in our own bones, our own flesh, the hands that we put in the rich earth um, into that soil. That all becomes part of the terroir as well. <laughs> the, the human connection, the grower yeah. is, is now right there, just like yeah. the vine is going up the tree and it's right there. Yeah, I love, I mean, the, the practical elements of these, just in terms, you know, I've been trying to learn more to relate all of this back to the, the wine quality, because that's really what the consumer cares about at the end of the day. And it just seems, you know, I've, I've heard other things similar to what we're talking about now where, you know, maybe not as uh, related to the mycorrhizae, but in the idea that if you interplant with, you know, if you just have a whole field or, or a whole vineyard full of vines, all of the vine depths are approximately going to be the same. Whereas if you interplant with various species, you're, you're pulling nutrients. Like if you plant a tree in the midst of the vineyard or neck on the edge of the vineyard, then you have different, a different depth that's being accessed by those tree roots, which are pulling up different nutrients that aren't available at the, le- the depth that the vine roots are. And then those leaves fall and mulch into the vineyard and make that those new minerals available to the vineyard. But you're saying, I mean, this idea is, is happening because of the fun, the fungi. And I love that idea. I mean, I just, it seems like there's some real practical things there in terms of, I guess this gets into the question I want to talk about, which is how should we, how can we create a, a forest of vines instead of a vineyard? I mean, and can we do that in a commercially viable way? Like, I guess I've, I've heard you say, just to give you a, a launch pad that you you don't so much as plant trees as launch fungal ecosystems and I wonder if you can apply that to vineyards and and what does that mean and and how should we be planting vines there was about 10 questions in there so <laughs> feel free to jump in at any one of them what i what i'd like to talk about is let, let's put our consciousness into the apple tree into the, vin, the vine and ask where do I really want to grow? And, and this is not a California versus New Hampshire question. This is about soil biology and a soil ecosystem that has a fungal biomass that's approximately 10 times greater than a bacterial biomass. That's where the magic happens for woodsy perennial fruiting plants. And, and so the answer to the question, standing here on the surface of the earth, is that's the kind of soil ecology I find on the edge of the forest, where there's goldenrods, tall, lignin-like flowering plants, along with raspberry canes, blackberry, whatever works in that particular growing zone, but also young trees starting to get their niche in, in, this, in the sunshine. Um, some of which are going to make it and some of which are going to crowd each other out. That in turn is going to provide lignin, organic matter, which fungi are going to thrive on. So we can plant all our apple trees and grapevines on the edge of the forest. You know, the grapes, they like that tree height at access. Um, that's not necessarily going to be too commercially 
productive. So what we have to do is, is take our agricultural goals and our knowledge of orchards and vineyards and bring the edge of the forest to that ground. And this, this is where I get into the concept of, of what I call fungal duff management. It's about providing the right kind of organic matter so that all kinds of fungi can thrive. So the, the main grouping of fungi that are going to break, break down that organic matter are the saprotrophic fungi. They're not mycorrhizal species uh, for the most part. Some mycorrhizae have this ability, but, but mostly they're going to interact to release nutrients that the mycorrhizae are going to pick up and then pass along through that plant network to the trees that we're growing. But in fungal duff management, it's, it's, it's recognizing what happens on the edge of the forest. How can we emulate that? So one of the things that I make use of in my orchard and it is available in, in many places is the finer brushy tops of trees and, and, and what grows in the hedgerow and what we might be clearing to keep airflow more happening around the outside edges of the vineyard around the orchard. And it, it's the, those finer branches particularly in more deciduous species that are going to favor a specific type of wood decom decomposition fungi where humus is going to be built from the lignans in that woody material. And when the branch is, let's say, two inches in diameter or less, proportionally, there's a lot more of the green inner cambium cells where the nutrients have been stored by that plant. So now, how does, how does that look like for us as humans? Well, when I prune my orchard, I'm taking small diameter branches off the apple tree. And when I return that to the soil, that's a forest edge thing. That's a fungal thing. When I stop along the road where the, a crew is, is clearing out under the power lines and chipping the brush and say, you know, if you were to bring that truckload to my farm, I got a bottle of cider for you, and, and you might be pretty happy about that, and I'm going to be really happy about that truckload of wood chips. That's a fungal act. Um, <laughs> when you have a polyculture and you are growing, let's say, willow or Siberian pea shrub or, or various things in with your vine plants, with your apple trees, and you are coppicing those plants, thereby taking one- and two-year-old stems, you might run that through a wood chipper. You might pile that up in low spots and cover it with hay or compost, creating kind of mini hugel culture pockets. You're doing fungal things. And, and that's what our mission is. That's what the human is. We, we can bring that forest edge into our agricultural systems that aren't on the forest edge, but it, it's, it's totally working towards creating the dynamics where fungi will thrive by which our fruit plants our trees, our vines will thrive. What about the pruned vine canes when we're going through the vineyard this time of year and cutting down all the, you know, pruning? Can we chip that up? Do you think that qualifies in the same vein? It totally qualifies in the same vein. There's, there's a couple caveats here. Um, it is It is typical in larger orchards now to throw the prunings into the aisle and then run over that with a flail chopper. Um, it's much easier than right. pulling all the brush out and, and burning it or, or getting rid of it in some, some fashion like that. We, we return it to the earth. Now, 
the flail chopper, the Iowa is getting kind of the fungal duff treatment in this respect and not so much under the drip line or under the tree. Um, but vineyards are planted a lot tighter. So that, that connection may seem a little bit more apropos in terms of restoring those nutrients to the, the vines. But another aspect here is there are some diseases that can lodge in apple trees. I'm, I'm not as familiar with grapes, but something like fire blight or black rot. Well, these are things that thrive in an aerial environment where there has been an opportunity to get into the cambium, into the nutrient system of the tree. And fire blight is a bacterial disease. And when fire blight cankers are on trunks, that can actively be producing more bacterial ooze, which is going to be more bacteria that spreads throughout the orchard, be it on the wind or on the feet of birds, through raindrops. And if you happen to be pruning at the time when the cankers are oozing, um, you want to be more conscious of just laying that down and distributing it in the orchard. On the other hand, if you're pruning really right. in the dormant season before that activity has started, and you are doing something to chip, you're taking an organism, a disease organism that thrives in an aerial environment, and you're saying, you have to now live in a soil environment, and they don't thrive there. So you have to have some common sense, but you also don't have to be so paranoid that you're, you're coming from a perspective that of sanitation, that the more sterile of an environment you can create, that's a way to, to deal with disease potential. When nature's lesson is, let's just shift the environment the disease is in, get it down there in the soil environment. When, when I said earlier about mini hugo culture, this permaculture idea of, of burying woody debris, um, often that's typically made into raised beds or, or even swales, berms on a slope to break that slope. And, and that's kind of a massive approach to hugo culture. But just to put down some the canes from my raspberries when I prune them. You know, you're, you're advised by extension. You know, you need to get rid of those canes. They're going to be a source of disease. Well, I want those lig that lignin material. I want that organic matter. And it's a pain in the butt to try to chip lots of raspberry canes. But when I just take a wheelbarrow load, throw it in a low spot and throw hay over it or throw some compost over it, I'll maybe run over it with my brush mower when I eventually am doing some mowing, I've changed the environment. Whatever was in those canes as a potential disease organism, that's not its ecosystem. It's not its place. And other organisms are going to take over, and that lignin, that good stuff, is going to be restored to the soil. So that, that's another thing we have to break from, this, this, this idea of the clean slate, that that's kind of this principle that we have to make things sterile. That's how we deal with disease. It's, it, you know, you're probably recognizing there are so many parallels between how nature does health with plants and with how we as humans might be doing our own health <laughs> and approaching being a much more diverse ecology in terms of our bodies. Yeah, well, and since you brought it up, since we're digging into some of the, the I guess you'd call them pathogenic fungi, um, you, you know, just in listening to you and reading it seems like you have a fight fungus with fungus kind of approach. Um, does that make sense? Does that sound true to what you do in terms of trying to compete? Uh, you know, I know with you, you have fire blade and, and with vines, we have powdery mildew is 
you know, our number one thing on the West Coast. And I know they have Downey and Black Rot as well on the East Coast, um, all of which are, are fungi. And, you know, because of that, we've developed this whole antifungal uh, arsenal, both organically and, and uh, conventionally to, to fight these. But, you know, from what I've heard from you, there's, there's a holistic way to do this that's, that's less about uh, killing fungus and more about out-competing. Is that correct? So th- this whole area, there's, there's, we have to approach this with an intelligence. So, so again, when I talk about an oozing canker, I'm probably going to like throw that in tractor bucket and get, get it out of the orchard if I, that's the point I'm working in spring, right. if I noticed it. On the other hand, I'm not going to be so paranoid that everything has to go so there's no potential disease inoculum there. Uh, and if there was a fire blight outbreak or if I've been brought in as a consultant in a what an orchard that's been managed chemically and there are there are not a whole lot of good microbes at work there's, there's the fungicides have really reduced the species diversity in an orchard and so pathogens really can have a heyday if the medicine is suddenly taken away um, there are tools w- which we use to reduce basically i'll call it the launching pad of disease so in the vineyard powdery mildew where does it overwinter? Where does it spring from? There's things we can do to work with that. But now we get to the, the growing season when apple scab, powdery mildew, whatever disease you want to name, be it fungal, be it bacterial, there, there's a point where it's very active and there's the plant. If the plant doesn't have the full array of balanced nutrition, it will not have necessarily all the secondary metabolites by which it uses to ward off disease. Well, there's a, there's a huge other piece involved in protecting plants from disease. And it's a piece that's always been there. And that's the fact that plant surfaces are covered by trillions and trillions of organisms, both bacterial and fungal, that are, for the most part, benign. Some that are playing an active role in helping the plant get nutrition. And this is not unlike the fact that you were talking to me and... I am here in in one human body, but this human body is actually a community of a hundred trillion organisms. And we're really getting deep into the microbes now, Adam, but um, without my friends, (laughs) my one human body would be in a lot of trouble if any pathogens came along. And and sometimes they do, and, and sometimes you're eating a great diet, you're dealing with stress in your life, your teenage daughter is is heating everything you have to say is her father. I mean, things are going really, really good. That doesn't mean things can't happen. Just like things can happen in the vineyard or in the orchard. And as growers, we have to know what are our tools, when's the time to act, when's the time not. But one of the main things we can do is understand that if we can reinforce arboreal biology, and I'm, I'm using that word reinforce because when you're out in the sunshine, and it gets extremely cold, extremely dry, there's ultraviolet light, what have you. Um, Microbe populations can be diminished. Certainly if fungicides have been sprayed, um, if herbicides are used, if chemical fertilization is used, all that diminishes the good populations. Um, If we reinforce that with, and there's various approaches from effective microorganisms, Korean natural farming, Bugs in a jug, as my friend Eric in Ohio likes to say, 
uh, products that you can buy, uh, products that you can home brew, that you can ferment. Um, by reinforcing that, you shift the scene that the pathogen comes into face. And that pathogen has to get its fungal hyphae when it first starts to make its move into the leaf tissue, into the fruit tissue, in order to access nutrients so it in turn can grow and become dominant in that niche. But when there's a whole lot of other microbes there competing for those nutrients, and this is important, they're also protecting the niche that they hold first by producing antimicrobial compounds. Now, growers are familiar with the idea of, of, of using antibiotics to spray on plants to thwart bacterial disease. Well, organisms produce their own antimicrobial compounds, in some cases, actual antibiotics targeted at pathogenic bacteria to protect their own niche. So rather than coming in with a synthetic chemistry that mimics what the organisms do, I come in with the organisms. <laughs> I go straight to the source. And, and, and that, that's the whole concept of competitive colonization. And, and it really shifts it. You know, another just quick example is some of your listeners are possibly familiar with the idea of biodynamic tree paste. This comes out of biodynamic agriculture lectures and how people interpreted Steiner over the years. But it, it's primarily sure. a mixture of native clay. Um, it's considered ideal to have fresh cow manure to mix with it, but I'll, I'll, we can substitute compost, but some kind of humus component that introduces all kinds of organisms. And when this is slathered on tree trunks or even sprayed as a slurry to deal with anthracnose throughout the tree canopy in early spring, what we are doing is, is we're giving the bark tissues spa treatment through the clay, but the humus component is introducing those organisms that are challenging the wood rot organisms, um, the canker organisms to the space, the niche that they occupy, and that changes everything. And, and it's that kind of an upper partnership. I've, we've described the mycorrhizal fungi in the soil. Now we're talking about the arboreal biology working in tandem with the plant the way nature has always done it to thwart disease. There's, there's a reason that forests thrive when we don't overly disturb that situation. There's a reason why a plant community eventually comes to a, a climax where there's this harmony and there's just a robust greenness and health to that. We as growers are dealing with degraded soil systems often, whether through our own doing or, or what's been inherited. Um, agriculture takes from the land and that, that's a key point. Restore organic matter, restore microbial diversity. That's really at the heart of, of what I call holistic orcharding. So it sounds like what I'm hearing are, are, if I can group it into two things. One, the first is to just, in terms of protecting against these things that do cause issues for uh, those of us who are trying to grow commercially, first would be to do the things that enhance the health of the the entire orchard or vineyard ecosystem, all, all the plant health things that you can do by adding organic matter, uh, introducing as much biodiversity as possible, using composts and teas and sprays and things like that to just increase and help 
the plant have everything that it needs to to take care of its own health to sort of uh, i think i've heard you say uh work from within essentially um and then the other thing the second point would be that you're introducing uh with that health and that biodiversity you get these competitions where the plant is naturally going to be colonized above the soil with all kinds of microbes that are, are going to help compete so that you don't get a, an out of balance infection. Essentially, you're, you're, you're going to hopefully have ways of that the plant now with and the ecosystem that it lives in is going to be protected and protect itself. I, th- I think so. Um, sound- you know, I, I spray in my orchard. I, I tell people when I'm doing workshops across the country, I've come to my NRA moment. It's not the sprayer that kills, it's what we put in the sprayer. And that's kind of probably not all that great humor. But but the idea is that people have this idea that if, if you spray, you're obviously going for the, the bad stuff. Well, the sprayer to me is a tool. And it is a tool by which I apply those organisms from effective microbes, from the fermented plant extracts I make. It is a tool by which I apply seaweed, which has all kinds of hormones and minerals that are going to help a fellow plant from kelp to the land plant. It has um, liquid fish often. I mean, you don't have to use fish. It's something I utilize. And my primary interest in that is the, the fish oils, the fatty acids of the fish, um, coupled with, I use seed oils, uh, neem oil and caranja oil primarily. You know, if you're in a place where industrial hemp is being grown and you can get hemp seed oil, that's cool. If, if, if your neighbor is a dairy farmer and, and you can get whey or, or even raw milk with the fatty acid component, that's cool. These fatty acids are all about feeding the arboreal biology, dripping onto the ground, feeding the mycorrhizal fungal network, um, which in turn then makes for a ro- more robust arboreal ecology and soil ecology in terms of the organism life. Um, and, and I'm going out there anywhere from seven to 14 days apart, depending on where I am in the season and who the pathogen players might be and the intensity of disease pressure. If it's a more rainy year, I'm going to be out there more often. But I am I'm supplementing, I'm strengthening, I'm giving a whole foods diet, so to speak, to the plants that I'm growing to produce fruit for my own whole foods diet, if that makes sense. Um, this notion that it all comes around, you know, you, you can hear that in these thoughts, in these terms. Yeah. And I, I just find it utterly fascinating to, to start to realize how do I build health um, for crop plants that feed my family, that feed my community, that go into the bottle of the, of the cider I ferment in my cellar and enjoy. Um, it's, it's to me it's just a beautiful tapestry yeah i couldn't agree more can can we ask can we get into some of the practical things that might be helpful to people i i guess i want to talk about um well let's start with because you brought it up you talked about we might be inheriting like we're a lot of times farmers are going to be working with degraded landscapes at this point in history and and it might be from our own doing and and we've started to realize the error of our ways or we might have inherited it how what advice would you have for somebody who has let's say inherited an orchard that's been farmed conventionally for 40 years and now they want to take it in an organic direction 
where should they start? What what are the what are the first three big things that they should be doing? One of the tenets in what I articulated as the non-disturbance principle in mycorrhizal planet um, is don't screw up. So don't continue what's been being done to that land. Um, and, and the use of, of chemicals is there might be a place because of a particularly devastating situation, but similarly as with our own health, um, if we face some degenerative disease issue, we want to change the diet. We want to change the lifestyle. Um, we're going to change the lifestyle of, of those plants in that land, and we're not going to treat them as drug addicts. And so coming in and possibly inoculating with mycorrhizal fungi because that component has been um, essentially devastated for the crop plants on that land, you, you can test for that, but it, it's really not that expensive, and it's it's a beginning point. I mean, you have to understand you got to get that those spores down in the soil. Um, you need a soaking rain as you apply it so that it's, you know, these organisms that live in the soil, live in the dark, get to go down into the dark spaces and find the roots and, and start the union. And then feed it. Feed it good stuff. Feed it fatty acids. Organic matter. Um, I, we talked briefly about the idea of, of Romeo wood chips, the finer portion of, of plants with more green cambium cells that the white rots are going to take those lignans and produce humic, long-term humic fertility. Um, that may take the form of a row mulcher and you're throwing chips right out there. You're bringing them in because you got a connection with a landscaper. Um, it also can take the form of, let's get some cover crops in those aisles. Let, let's get some deep-rooted plants to put some organic matter down. Compost is a wonderful thing to provide those plants. Um, it's all about restoring health. And you do that by providing the right kind of foods that fungal organisms and positive beneficial bacteria can thrive on and that in turn creates a more diverse plant community and that in turn creates a very robust common root being and now we're in magic land <laughs> how long is that process how long should people think about you know getting to magic land from from zero from a you know, I don't know. I want to tell you, I, don't I guess it depends if you choose the blue pill or the red pill. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I think instead, <laughs> the right answer is it might be three years. It might be five years. It might be seven, nine years. Um, depends on, on the degree of degradation of that system. If there's been a few years since it's been managed yeah. intensively under a chemical regimen, nature has started to restore some aspects. Um so in that sense, you'll have less years, but that, that's, that's a complicated answer. Yeah. And then the, the red pill would be, it never ends. It's an ongoing <laughs> I don't know. I never thought about or... the blue pill thing. Uh, <laughs> that just came out. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, in terms of, if you can extrapolate from your findings with apple trees and maybe apply to also vines, what are some homeopathic sprays and remedies that you think would are most effective and might do well in vineyards for those of us who want to try some of these things, as well as uh, cover crops? Like, uh, you know, that's a obviously a big thing with vineyards. Um, do, you, do you have a sense of what might, I've heard you talk about, uh, God, I forget, it's a sorghum grass, but I forget what it's called, the um, 
Well, sedan, sedan some kind grass. of grass that you have mentioned in other sedan grass. Thank you. I don't know if you'd think that would be a good one, or if there's other ones that might be good in vineyards. If you want to talk about cover crops and homeopathic sprays, that might be great. So, with the cover crop piece, you know, you you wouldn't plant sedan grass in, in a vineyard. It, it would get tall, and there'd be this dominant, um, thick okay. plant community between your vineyard rows. You you might include. Sedan grass is part it. of soil prep in a process of preparing ground to plant uh, grapevines or apple trees. You know, one of my okay. go-to cover crop combinations in the garden um, after you've harvested garlic and peas and, and what have you, and it's it's now August, and, and I'm not talking California ecosystems. We can shift some of this, but, but for most of us in, in zone four, five, six, zone three, possibly zone seven, mm -hmm. um, you plant things like oats and field pea and tillage radish. That's the core. Um, you're having kind of the symbiosis aspect going on between the pea and the oats. The tillage radish is driving deep into the soil to break up compaction. Photosynthesis is, is going to happen all through the fall into first snow cover or the dry season, plant growth ends. But here I'm, I'm deliberately using cover crops that all winter kill. In, in the zones I'm describing. And so in the spring, you're, you're left with this beautiful surface of organic matter that's not competing with your vines just when a lot of action is going on. So that's the cover crop piece. You know, we, we go into a lot of places. Just keep in mind, mycorrhizal fungi work with plant roots. It takes two to tango. And when you introduce different plant species into a cover crop mix, more things happen. As far as I, the the notion of sprays, I, I don't often use the word homeopathic. So what I think I'll do to okay. answer that part of your question is bring in the mineralization piece. So we, we've talked some about how the fungi bring minerals to the plant. There's a, many growers are familiar with the idea of foliar calcium sprays or, or maybe um, tonic boron applied just as the plant goes, the woody perennial goes into flower and just at the time point of fruit set, because boron is not missing in all soils, but it's usually not sufficient, the quantity that's in the plant for calcium uptake and, and other things. So this notion of foliar nutrients. What is a, is there an organic uh, source of boron that you use for these sprays? Well, they were talking about, you know, um, what is it? Borax laundry detergent, you know, that that's mined from the earth. It's, it's considered a natural product. So it's an, it's an organic formulation, uh, soluble. Oh, okay. there, there's, there's different um, mineral chemistry sources we can use. Manganese sulfate is something that I will dissolve, work with biology to help make it more available. But that, that's my source of manganese, but it's a, it's, a, it's a common soil amendment. There are companies that sell nutrient formulations. But when I make these fermented plant extracts, uh, this is things like comfrey, green nettle leaf, uh, in the case of wanting to emphasize calcium, um, horsetail, equisetum, arvens, and nettle when it's gone to seed gets very high levels of silica when I want to emphasize silica. I, I'm basically breaking down plant material with microbes. I even add milk to the calcium brew because um, it's got a lot of calcium. It's got fatty acids. It's got lactic acid bacteria. That sets seven, nine, ten days. And... 
I come out on the other side with these nutrients in the brew. This is not like compost tea where I'm trying to emphasize filling all the space with organisms. Here I'm trying to fill the space in the liquid with nutrients and I'm applying that as part of my spray schedule mixed with the neem oil and the caranja oil and the fish and the seaweed and the more effective microorganisms. So now we're getting into what's going on with the plant at different points in the season. I, I like to use the term nutrient pulsing. Um, and I, I know that with apple, there are certain things needed for robust flowers, for strong flowers that are going to be pollinated. I know with apple that there are certain elements needed to develop fruitlets, to take the, the tree at that point through the cell division phase. And the more cell division, the larger fruit, when I'm growing dessert apples, this becomes important. Um, I'm going to be able to grow because I, I had the nutrients there at the right time. And, and the roots, the mycorrhizal network, yes, that's all bringing things into the tree. But as growers, part of what we've come to understand is there's times when we can supplement that aspect as well. Um, so, so it is, it's, it's really a combination of all these things. And in one sense, if, if you're just hearing about this for the first time, you're thinking this is pretty complicated stuff, but it, it's also really basic and it really springs from the heart. When you start to understand plants, you want to work with the soil. You want, you want to see that soil become more friable, uh, to have good tilth, you know, and, and, and in the long run, 20 years down the road, you'll think to yourself, I did this because that's our human nature to take credit. But it wasn't you. I mean, you didn't get in the way. <laughs> you obeyed the tenant of not screwing up. But the fungi did this. The plants did this. This is, this is the symphony. This, this is the orchestra that we can hear. And, and I mean, how finer does it get to make a living growing apples, making good cider, growing grapes, making good wine, sharing that with your family and your community, but you're doing it with this incredible team. I love it. I love that too. I, yeah, that's a, I think that's the poetry of it. I, I guess my last pa practical question, cause I, I love where we're heading poetically, but my last practical question just that I've been thinking about is I know you've talked about that the mycorrhizae are, are everywhere from the Arctic to the deserts. Are there specific ones that those of us in dry climates, um, you know, where it doesn't seem like a, a super pro fungal area could, could look to uh, as the best mycorrhizal fungi for that, for, for our climate, whether it's, you know, from desert to Mediterranean, you know, dry summers, no rain for eight months of the year kind of thing. So th th there are ways to um, draw indigenous cultures by growing plants, essential grasses usually in a sack and inoculate that with native soil ecology. And you will produce some of those fungi and they'll sporulate and, and you can utilize that. But many of the commercial inoculums um, and the quality ones feature as many as nine different endo fungal species. The species that have been selected have this cosmopolitan nature. They're found in all these different ecosystems. And while let's say one of them really works in concert with particular plants in that drier ecosystem you're talking about, that might have a different skill set than the same species in a more tropical place or up towards the temperate forest zones but it's still the same species <laughs> and it'll collaborate. It'll teach that skill set um, 
in a new ecosystem. And, and it's really like we can, we can compound what the individual species of fungi can do through the plants that grow where they're now introduced. And, and some of the species in that inoculant product, they're not going to work in any every given ecosystem mm-hmm. they're put into, but they mostly are. This is one of the reasons they've been selected. They brought particular skill sets that are important to really jumpstart an ecosystem to get out of that degraded state. Um, so learning about the inoculum piece and how you can reboot <laughs> if needed, um, possibly supplement depending on the crop, the disturbance. You know, if, if you're growing brassicas in a market garden setting, I'm, I'm wandering here from the woody perennials, brassicas mostly don't have the mycorrhizal affiliation. So the history of the land comes into play. And, and there are points where inoculating the garlic crop that follows or the potato crop that follows, it makes a lot of sense. And again, it's not that expensive. On the other hand, you know, the goal is get it done, <laughs> make that first batch of sourdough bread, and now you have some dough that you can set aside each time and have the yeast that you want working forever. That, that's what we're doing with the fungi in the soil. We, we get this ecosystem going again. Mm-hmm. We provide the right kinds of foods, the right kind of organic matter. So there's, there's a practical piece to the inoculum story, and that, that hints at some of what's there. So uh, thank you for that. <laughs> I, I I guess like just to wrap up, I wanted to get your thoughts about just the journey that you've been on. It's like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm on a similar journey in that I was drawn in by these, the fruits of these plants that, that attracted us, you know, be, I fell in love with wine in the glass. Um, maybe you fell in love with apples or something. And then here we are and we're deep in the soil <laughs> and we're <laughs> discovering this connection to all life. You know, does that ever fascinate you to think about how you were drawn into that? It, it does. Um, I probably can't necessarily explain it. I, I guess, I guess I would say that somehow I was blessed enough to wake up and we certainly need a lot more humans <laughs> to wake up and to start understanding that um, we need to turn our attention now to repairing the natural world and that we're going to do that by starting to learn these principles you and I have been talking about here today. Um, and for me, it's just this fascinating journey. You know, why, I mean, I have a degree in civil engineering. I, I was able to have a career that lasted 10 months and then I retired at age 23. And here I am in my retirement 40 years later, <laughs> um, just having a grand old time working with plants. Um, I don't actually have like a pension plan or anything, but you, you get the idea of what I'm talking about. And I don't know, I somehow I just feel sure. I was lucky. You know, was that a combination of past lives just waiting for me to discover that? Um, was it just the blessing of discovering your heart song in the soil and in the green plants and serendipity leading you to the right people and the right books and the right thoughts so you could take it further uh, on the journey? It's, I guess the journey is now, this moment now. <laughs> and I, I don't always understand the path, but I, I'm just blessed that I, I'm here where I am. Thanks, Mike. I, I, I think, uh, I hope, this will be that for some people listening as well. Um, how can people find out more about your what you're doing and, and your books and get in touch and just uh, learn about, yeah, everything about you? We, we have a Growers Network website, um, groworganicapples.com. 
And that is one place to touch base. And my books are available as long as, as well as some other titles I recommend. Um, there's research aspects. There's some teachings in the biological curriculum. My own orchard, our farm here, um, that website is lostnationorchard.com. And there you can read about um, the cider club I'm doing and <laughs> learn about some of the varieties of apples I grow. So the web is, is kind of our my, mycelial outreach today. And kind of cool that <laughs> we're emulating yeah. what the fungi have been saying, y'all better start collaborating and form the support <laughs> networks. There we have it. <laughs> Finally, in the 21st century, we figured it out or started to. We figured out about 5% of it. <laughs> um, well, right, right, right. We, we tapped into it at least. We opened the, the window a crack. Um, well, thank you so much, Michael. It's, uh, I mean, truly a, a pleasure to talk about these things with you. And I, I can't wait to, to learn more. I know we've just barely scratched the surface. And I hope people do look into what you're doing, read your books, and find you know other podcasts with you because it's uh you know i listen to probably i don't know five and i've learned at least 10 new things on each one that i listen to so um you know i just want to give a heads up to anybody listening that there's there's so much here in in getting to know you and and what you're learning about and teaching about and growing and writing um so thank you well thank you adam it's it's been a pleasure to join you on your podcast and you know, I know we didn't drink any wine or cider, but uh, we're on the road. We're on the road to it. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Michael Phillips as much as I did. And if you would like to support this podcast and learn more and stay in touch, please go to centraliswine.com and sign up for our email list. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S-Wine dot com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Organic Wine Podcast or at Centralis Wine. Thanks a lot.